0: This is Reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Centralia Tragedy, Part 3. Over the Chehalis River. In the summer of 1913, massive lumber strikes broke out across the Pacific Northwest. Their demands were ambitious an eight-hour day, a minimum wage of $3 a day, clean bunkhouses and soap and towels and bathrooms, and the abolition of paid employment offices, where men had to pay fees for the pleasure of working for the lumber barons. One such strike took place near Coos Bay in Oregon, where mobs raided the IWW hall and rounded up strikers. They were beaten and arrested, and two men were even hauled out of the jail and forced to kneel before and kiss an American flag. They were then deported from town by boat. One of those men was Wesley Everest, at the time 25 years old and a handsome, brash, rebellious logger who was one of nine children from a family of pioneers. His parents both died before Everest was 14, and the orphaned boy was sent to work on a family member's farm. He grew restless, as young men are wont to do, and at the age of 17 he left to find work in the logging and railroad industries. When World War I began, Everest was drafted into the U.S. Army Spruce Production Division in Washington, one of the tools the U.S. government used to combat strikes and slowdowns in the industry. But Everest didn't do much logging during his time in the Army. He spent most of it in the stockade. Each morning, the men would leave their bunks to stand in formation and salute the American flag. But Everest refused and was sent to the stockade until the next day when he would do it again. The only exceptions were the days when the weather was particularly dreadful, when the men were not forced to salute, and Everest was forced to work. Ralph Chaplin implies that this was deliberate, so Everest would always have to work in the worst conditions. When he was discharged in early 1919, Everest moved into a boarding house in Centralia. He didn't own much, a bundle of law books, his army uniform, and a Colt thirty-two twenty 20 revolver. He often wore his uniform while out and about, including at the October 20th Legionnaires meeting and on Armistice Day. Why he wore his uniform despite his clear disdain for American patriotism is hard to say. None of the writers I've read on the subject have touched on it. But given the rest of his personality, I'd say it was to stick his thumb in the eye of anyone who might call an IWW member a traitor to his country. Lauren Roberts, A Wobbly, who had also attended the Union Hall meeting to plan defenses for the raid, described Everest as, A man that didn't give a goddamned for nothing. He was really a desperate character, and he didn't give a goddamned what happened to him or what he'd done. Everest had been the most vocal and adamant of the Wobblies about the need to defend the Hall with force. Britt Smith clearly agreed, and the morning of November 11th, he was at the Union Hall handing out guns to any man who wanted to be armed. Elmer Smith came by to warn the men that Legionnaire Arthur McElfresh was telling people in town that a raid on the hall was imminent. Casually, he asked, "Well, boys, are you ready for a raid?" No one answered. The atmosphere was thick. Smith told Britt he was leaving to go defend his office in case it was also attacked. By the time he got there, the parade had begun. The parade consisted of members of the Elks Lodge. Sailors, Marines, the Boy Scouts led by the high school principal, and in the rear were veterans from the Chehalis and Centralia posts of the American Legion. With the band playing Over There, a popular World War I song declaring that the Yanks were coming with their guns over there, the parade set out toward the north end of town on Tower Avenue, toward the Roderick Hotel and the IWW Hall. Wobblies were stationed in four locations. Most were at the Hall. Several were across the street at the Avalon and Arnold Hotels, and three men watched from nearby Seminary Hill. The parade passed 2nd Street, where the Union Hall sat, and continued on to 3rd. There was a spark of hope that nothing would happen, and when they reached 3rd Street, the marchers all turned and started up the other side of Tower Avenue. The line thinned with the maneuver, and Warren Grimm ordered the legionnaires bringing up the rear to close ranks directly in front of the Roderick Hotel. For a moment, the men seemed uncertain. Someone asked who was leading the raid, and suddenly, the parade marshal, Adrian Cormier, rode up on horseback and blew a loud and shrill whistle. A group of Centralia legionnaires broke ranks, someone shouting, Let's go! Adam boys! And they charged the hall, while the Chehalis legionnaires stared in confusion. Chaplin says that Cormier turned to the clueless Chehalis vets and shouted, Aren't you boys coming with us? Some of the raiders carried lengths of rope and blunt objects. They began to kick the door down and smashed the front plate glass window. The door had just been broken open when gunshots hailed through the doorway at the intruders. Hearing the shots, wobblies at Seminary Hill and the Avalon Hotel began firing as well, and the legionnaires were caught in the crossfire. Arthur McElfresh, who that morning had been telling citizens of the planned raid, was directly in front of the hall and was struck near his left ear. Another veteran, Ben Casagrande, was shot in the stomach as he ran for cover down 2nd Street. Warren Grimm was shot in the left side of his chest on Tower Avenue, where he had ordered the Legionnaires to close ranks. The shooting was over in less than a minute. The street was chaos, with people seeking cover and dragging the wounded men into cars to race to the hospital. Veterans were breaking into hardware stores, appropriating guns and ammunition and distributing them. Wobblies were on the run, and some retreated to the back of the Union Hall and into a large unused ice box. The mob set upon the hall, ripping down the front porch and setting fire to everything inside mattresses and books, newspapers and records. They destroyed everything in sight and made their way to the back of the hall where they found six men hiding in the icebox. Britt Smith, Ray Becker, Mike Sheehan, James McInnerney, Tom Morgan, and Bert Faulkner. The men were captured and brought to the jailhouse. Wesley Everest, who had done most of the shooting inside the hall, escaped out the back door as the mob was breaking in the front. Those who saw him thought he was Britt, the Union secretary. They gave chase through the woods toward the Skookumchuck River, Everest and the legionnaires trading gunfire as they went. Everest then began to ford the river. A fool's errand, he was a weak swimmer and the current was strong, but then he thought better of it and stood his ground there on the riverbank. He shouted that he would only surrender to the police, but they continued to descend upon him. Dale Hubbard, legionnaire and nephew to F.B. Hubbard, took the lead. Once he was only a few feet away, Everest fatally shot Hubbard in the chest several times before he was overpowered by the mob who kicked and beat him to a pulp. Men scuffled for position to land blows and kicks, and one used the muzzle of his rifle to smash Everest's face, breaking several of his teeth. They slid a belt around his neck and dragged him back to town, a throng growing behind them, demanding that he be lynched immediately but as they were preparing to hang him over a telephone pole, the police intervened. Everest was thrown, beaten, bloody, and unresponsive, onto a bare concrete floor in a hallway near the jail cells. He was so severely battered, they didn't bother to properly lock him up. Elmer Smith had left his office just after the parade began to run home for his own gun and hadn't heard anything of the confrontation. Back at his office, the school principal and a group of Boy Scouts—yes, Boy Scouts—were waiting to apprehend him. When Smith demanded to see a warrant, which the principal did not have, nor did the Boy Scouts, he said he would not leave unless a police officer made him. But, looking around at the faces of boys who had once been his students and not wanting to cause a violent confrontation, he caved and ended up in the city jail with a dozen or so wobblies. The mob continued to grow, and now more than a hundred people bayed outside the jail demanding retribution. Their howls were so deafening the jailed men couldn't speak to each other over the racket. Outside, the Legion was forming vigilante groups to round up the remaining Wobblies in town. Armed with guns, they interrogated workers on the street, raided pool halls, and lined men up to search them for red cards indicating IWW membership. One man who had witnessed the raid was stopped by the vigilantes who seized his camera and warned him, If you know when you are well off, you will keep your damn mouth shut about anything you saw here today. By that evening, 22 men had been stuffed into the city jail that was built to hold 10. Even Elmer Smith's brothers, Harry and Jim, had been imprisoned, as well as poor Tom Lasseter. Meanwhile, at the Elks Club... A crowd of 70 or so people had gathered with guns from the city's armory. Anyone who was not a member of the Legion or the Elks was told to leave, and roughly half of them did. The rest went inside to meet until 7 p.m., and at 7.30, every light in Centralia went out. Legionnaires stopped motorists on the streets and demanded that they turn off their headlights. The mob from the Elks Club stormed the jail, finding no resistance. In a pool of blood, they came upon Wesley Everest, and again mistaking him for the IWW secretary Britt Smith, they dragged him out of the corridor and into a car just outside. The men in the jail sat in silence until the lights finally returned after a very long 15 minutes. Six cars, with headlights extinguished, left Centralia for the Chehalis River Bridge. One of the cars held the broken and barely responsive Wesley Everest. At the bridge, the men tied a noose around his neck and wordlessly pushed Everest over the side. But when they heard him moaning and struggling minutes later, they realized the rope had been too short to snap his neck. They hauled him back up, replaced the noose with a longer one, and again threw him over the side. This time, he was silent, and the men returned to their cars to turn on their headlights illuminating the corpse. They fired shots at the lifeless body and, finally, left it there, hanging over the Chehalis River. Back at the jail, a crowd continued to harangue the prisoners with shouts and threats. Someone dangled a rope through a barred window and promised to lynch them. James McInerney was dragged out of his cell by the mob, who put a rope around his neck and threw the other end over a crossbar. But there was dissent in the crowd, and ultimately they settled on beating him and throwing him back in his cell. He said of that night, I thought it was my last night on earth, and I had reconciled myself to an early death. Britt Smith recounted years later, Every time I heard a footstep or the clanking of keys, I thought the mob was coming after more of us. Finally, at midnight, the crowd began to disperse, and an uneasy quiet settled over the jailhouse though no one slept. The next day, the Chronicle featured an editorial on what would soon be called the Armistice Day Massacre, which called the IWW despicable parasites of humanity. It celebrated the vigilanteism, writing, the episode of Last night is but the natural result of a red-handed revolutionist getting his just desserts without loss of time or the painfully slow process of law. The apparent infringement of the law last night was the essence of law and order. This is such a fascinating characterization of the vigilantism that defined the broader regional conflict between wobblies and business. The IWW was such a dire threat, according to this viewpoint, that the justice system, so often lauded by patriotic, constitution-loving Americans, was too inept to handle the uniquely despicable actions of union agitators. For such miscreants, true justice can only be found at the end of an axe handle, or a lead pipe, or a rope. Speaking of, as the Chronicle was printing and delivering papers in the early morning of November 12th, someone drove out to the bridge that crossed the Chehalis River and cut the rope tied around Wesley Everest's neck. His body fell unceremoniously into the shallow river, left to sit in the sun and stones until sunset, when men brought the corpse to the jailhouse and threw it on the cold floor in front of the imprisoned Wobblies, the rope still hanging from his neck. Both of Centralia's undertakers refused to take Everest's corpse, and it wasn't until the following day that a coroner's jury examined the body and determined that Everest had died by strangulation and gunshot wounds. Yeah, no kidding. Officials had been calling Everest Brick Smith, clearly confusing both Britt's name and Everest's identity. Britt was finally given the opportunity to correct the record, though it all hung over him like a black cloud. The confusion had probably saved his life, at Wesley's expense. Everest's body was then, finally, placed in a simple wooden box and transported in, and this is true, James Lynch's moving van, which had a sign on the side reading, Lynch, for quick work, call us. Four of the imprisoned IWW men, escorted by armed National Guardsmen, were allowed to bury Everest in the paupers section of the local cemetery. Meanwhile, vigilantes were expanding past the city limits of Centralia and into the countryside in search of anyone who was associated with labor. They busted into homes looking for literature and arms, but they mostly found terrified women and children. After all, working men had to... actually work. Elmer Smith's extended family, most of whom lived in the woods outside Centralia, were especially targeted by the mobs. And when the wives of Elmer's brothers who had been imprisoned on the 11th despite not being associated with the IWW at all, went to the jail to visit their husbands, they were turned away. Mary Smith told the officer, with venom in her voice, You have made more IWWs and radicals in the last 48 hours in Centralia than the IWW themselves could make in a year's time. Eventually, the brothers were released, but not Elmer who had now been moved with some of the other men to nearby Monroe to relieve the overcrowding in the Centralia jail. The frenzied hunt for Wobblies went on. A man driving through Chehalis ignored an order from a legionnaire to stop his truck for inspection and was shot in the shoulder. In the woods, two posses of legionnaires came upon each other and, each thinking the other was a group of Wobblies, opened fire. One of the men was killed, becoming the final casualty of the Armistice Day Massacre. The press heavily favored the Legionnaires' version of the story. How could they not? These men were the heroes of the Great War, reporting that the veterans were attacked unprovoked, that the parade had been peaceful. There was no mention of the 1918 raid, the many instances of violence against unarmed Wobblies, or the brutal lynching of Wesley Everest and the degradation of his corpse. Expressing even an ounce of sympathy for the imprisoned men was proof that one was a traitor. This fact alone makes it impossible to determine the true beliefs of the public at the time. Such was the grip the Red Scare had on Americans. I probably don't have to tell you what came next. Police forces throughout the Pacific Northwest came down hard on the IWW. They raided union halls and offices in Portland, Seattle, Yakima, Aberdeen, Spokane, Tacoma, and elsewhere. Washington State Attorney General L.L. Thompson advised the state's prosecutors to bring wobblies to trial simultaneously and in mass groupings so they wouldn't be able to find enough defense attorneys. Remember, not many lawyers were willing to take on such cases. The criminal syndicalism law was used liberally, as was sedition. In fact, When the Seattle Union record dared to condemn both sides of the confrontation and cite the earlier attacks on the IWW as an instigating factor, the police raided their offices and shut down their presses. They arrested staff members, including the editor, and charged them with sedition. The court eventually found that the seizure was unlawful, but, as so often happened, the damage was done. The consequences of showing even the slightest understanding of the Wobbly's motivations were laid bare for all to see. There was a slight snag in the straightforward narrative of a peaceful parade wantonly attacked by radical armed thugs. At the coroner's examination of the dead legionnaires, a surgeon named Frank Bickford testified to the coroner's jury that the doors of the hall had, in fact, been busted open prior to the shooting. What made his testimony particularly compelling was his admission that not only had he marched with the legionnaires that day, but that there was a planned raid, and he had even offered to lead it. Another man who also marched corroborated the story. An Associated Press correspondent who reported on the testimony and its implications was run out of town by a mob, warned to never return. Twelve IWW members, Britt Smith, Ray Becker, Bert Faulkner, James McInerney, Mike Sheehan, O.C. and Bert Bland, John Lamb, Lauren Roberts, Eugene Barnett, Ole Hansen, and John Doe Davis were all indicted by a grand jury on charges of the first-degree murder of Warren Grimm. Hansen and Davis had escaped after the shootout and were never found. Elmer Smith was charged with accessory to murder for allegedly encouraging the men to use armed force against the Legionnaires, Though he always denied that he counseled them to use guns. No one was charged for the murder of Wesley Everest. Warren Grimm was chosen as the murder victim in the trial for a few reasons. Wesley Everest, who had killed Dale Hubbard, was already dead. Arthur McElfresh had been killed close to the hall, with eyewitnesses testifying that he was one of the men who attacked the building. Grimm's exit wound suggested he'd been shot from above meaning it would have been one of the men at the Avalon Hotel or Seminary Hill who killed him, not someone from the besieged hall. And finally, Warren Grimm had the most community standing of any of the men killed. He was commander of the Legion Post and had been a close friend of the prosecuting attorney, Clifford Cunningham. As for the defense attorney, the trial had become prominent enough for the IWW General Defense Committee in Chicago to take an interest they hired the nationally recognized labor attorney George Vanderveer, who swiftly sent his law partner Ralph Pierce to Centralia to begin collecting evidence. But when Pierce arrived, two armed men would not allow Pierce off the train, a tactic that was used several times during the trial. In Chehalis, where the prisoners were being held, the police would not allow Pierce to speak with the men for days. Once they were arraigned, Pierce set to work getting a change of venue for the trial, given that they could hardly find an unbiased jury so close to Centralia. He also filed protest over the charges against Mike Sheehan, Burt Faulkner, and Elmer Smith, arguing that the men had nothing to do with the killings. Charges were dropped against Faulkner alone, leaving ten defendants total. The request to change venue was granted. To Montesano. Where the sentiment toward IWWism was as poisoned as it was in Centralia. Just after the shootings, a major Montesano newspaper editorial called the IWW a nest of copperheads. It went on to say, We have no sympathy for such human reptiles. They must be destroyed. On top of this, the judge was no friend of labor. At first, the prosecution tried to gain advantage by hiring the brother of the presiding judge. Pierce filed a motion to have a new judge assigned, given the conflict of interest. So, the governor appointed John M. Wilson, who was probably an even worse pick than the first. He had spoken at a memorial service to honor the dead legionnaires, and had previously said publicly that veterans of the war should take it up as their duty to dispense with the IWW radicals. So, yeah, it was going to be a tough trial. When Vanderveer finally arrived, he quickly saw that the move to Montesano was no improvement on Chehalis, and filed for a move to Tacoma, but was denied. Public opinion against the Wobblies continued to grow, and in the face of blistering attacks in the region's newspapers, the IWW could only print leaflets telling their side. To try to cut through some of this prejudice, the Seattle Central Labor Council and several AFL organizations sent six representatives to Montesano a labor jury who would sit in the courtroom to observe the trial and then decide their own verdict. It was a moment of quiet truce between the craft unions and the IWW, who had fought so bitterly so often about the appropriate organizing model. But the craft unions saw the trajectory of anti-IWW sentiment. Soon, the mobs would come for them, too. Elmer Smith, meanwhile, was being painted as the ringleader of the Centralia IWW and even a member himself, though he was not, and not even eligible because he did not earn a wage. The Chehalis B. Nugget, fantastic name for a newspaper, reported, Most of the membership of the IWW was found to be ignorant and alien, but as always the case, there is a set of brains leading them. Who this leader is cannot be definitely stated, but the officials are inclined to give a large share of this credit to Elmer S. Smith. It went on to say, Smith may find himself enmeshed in a web from which he cannot extricate himself. He has been under suspicion for some time as a prominent IWW member. Smith resented this characterization for two reasons. First, because it was simply untrue. He wasn't an IWW member. And second, because counter to the prevailing sentiment that being anti-war and pro-labor was unpatriotic, Smith believed that the rights of free association and free speech were the pinnacle of American ideals. Meanwhile, the conditions in the Montesano jailhouse were abhorrent. The cells were damp and constantly freezing in the winter months. The inmates were given meals of overcooked potatoes, thin broth, and cold coffee. Smith organized a protest A silent strike, and after two days the men were given bread with their meals. But still, Vanderveer had advised the men not to speak to each other about the conflict, and in fact, the men didn't even know each other very well for the most part, so there was little trust among them. The cells were so dimly lit that it was difficult to read. Smith tried to cheer the men up by telling jokes and stories, by reading aloud newspaper cartoons and bringing a jovial spirit to the jailhouse. In interviews with newspapers, Smith was confident that all ten of them would be acquitted. The other nine did not share his optimism. Elmer Smith was the sort of man who believed, as a central conviction of his religion, his work, his entire worldview, that justice prevailed in the end, that eventually, good men and bad men alike got what was coming to them. But the timber beasts who would be tried alongside him knew a different reality in which men did not, in fact, get what they deserved. They got what they were willing to fight for, and even then, not very often. How could men fight in a courtroom where they could not even speak? Where the rules were foreign and opaque and not in their favor? Where their lives were in the hands of strangers who hated them without knowing them? No, the other nine men on trial did not share Smith's optimism, because they saw the world as it was, bought and sold by men with the power to lay their claim. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com reactionpodcast reaction podcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.